Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The day after is the nothing personal word of the day for Thursday, December 15th, 2022. The day after should be a triggering phrase for those of you born before 1990. That TV show in 1983, remember the day after was about nuclear holocaust happening and we all thought it was actually happening when we were watching Jason Robards in that movie. The day after refers to how do you feel sleeping on something which basic tenets of my principles and advice that i will give to people don't make decisions while emotional don't be emotional at all if you can help it sleep on something and tell me how you feel the day after yesterday was the day of some crazy mlb news some signings as we contemplate what's happening in this off season of totally wacky old people getting tons of money or they're young now, but they're keeping to be getting money when they're old. So what happens when you wake up the day after? And there's two sides to it. The teams who do the signings wake up the day after and they are super excited. They get dressed faster. They've got to skip in their step, put on some cologne, get to the office, little perfume, go right to the sales department. We're going to have a meeting at 10 o'clock. I want to see marketing. I want to see sales. I want to see graphic design. I want to make sure that we are taking full advantage that Carlos Correa is going to be a giant. Tell me everything. Let's look at the giveaway list. Let's get a bobblehead going. All of these things are happening the day after. I used to warn the departments before we actually announce a signing whoever the signing was, it doesn't matter what, whether it was a two-year deal for 20 million or a six-year deal for 100 million or a five-year deal for 80 million, it doesn't matter. We would warn certain departments, including our baseball department, our clubhouse department, hey, we're gonna need a jersey. We've got a press conference tomorrow. Hey, we wanna get this person into the rotation for community appearances. We call our community affairs department. So we are getting everyone ready for the day after. So that's the club who signs the player. The club who doesn't get the player, they have a different type of day after. Their day after 
is also going into your sales department and explaining to them, hey, when the phones ring today and when you're making your outgoing phone calls or when you're contacting potential season ticket holders, because we are right in the middle of selling season here in December, we're selling Christmas packages and Hanukkah packages. We're trying to do all that we can to drum up business over this off season period prior to spring training starting. Here's what we're gonna tell people when they say, you didn't get Correa like with the Giants after Aaron Judge, the day after. You didn't get Aaron Judge. What do you say? Well, what I want you guys to say is that our baseball department is still working to make this team better, and I would expect a signing that will make you happy in the near future. The only way the sales department knows about that is if the president of the team goes in and says, by the way, don't despair that Judge went to the Yankees. I assure you that we're doing something else. And the only way you say that is if you know for sure you're doing something else, which means you're going to get totally screwed in a negotiation. That said, that's what you say to your sales department. Now, if you're a team who almost got judged and you are not going to reallocate that money and you have to manage the expectations of your salespeople, then you tell them that. Say, listen, that was a generational player. Our owner knows that when that type of player is available, we will make special money available. But short of getting that player, we are very confident in the team we have. And I want you to push upon people that we have Mitch Hanniger, we have Logan Webb. Look at the pitchers we signed last year, Wood, Descalfani, et cetera. And we are excited to compete in a division with the Padres and the Dodgers. You have to know what you are selling in order to sell it. You have to communicate with different departments in your company and to do it properly, you have to have vision. You can't be left one day, right one day, zigzagging where people don't know what the hell you're doing. You have to have clarity of vision and clarity of communication. What about the day after when you're a team who is being rumored to be engaged in a player? What do you do there? I would not be in touch with my marketing department or sales department if I am in the mix for a player and it's too early for me to know whether or not we're going to give in and meet the player's demands and get the player, whether we're going to move on and supplement with mid-range players. Too early for me to know, so I'm not communicating anything. The teams who are in the Carlos Rodon sweepstakes are in that position. They have no way to know where he's going to choose. Is he going to be a Cardinal? Is he going to be a Yankee? Is he going to be a Cub? There's interesting pressure that is being brought to bear by his agent, Scott Boras. And the pressure is this. The offseason is coming to an end. The rush of Christmas signings. Santa is, can you picture Scott saying this? I can't, Coco. Santa is still delivering presents, but soon... He will be back to his home in the North Pole and you will be left out in the cold. Is that not a perfect Scott Boris statement? What a tool. So he goes to these teams and he says, hey, we've got cream of the crop here. Two years of performance. He's only looking for a seven-year deal. This is the type of player you want. Of course, it's $30 million a year, but... You cannot imagine the value of a starting pitcher at the top of your rotation or depth in your existing great rotation. You want to win New York? You move Severino down and you put, you move Nestor Cortez down and you put Carlos Rodon right with Garrett Cole 
and you're talking better than Scherzer Verlander. You're talking better than McCullers, Garcia, or Kitty. You got to do it. The Yankees say to themselves, what is our appetite for another long-term deal? So they're weighing the risk. They're trying to figure out which direction they want to go. In the meantime, they're pretty clear with the agent what they want to do. They don't want Scott Boris to believe that they are desperate for Carlos Rodon. So what they should be doing is calling up Scott and saying, we have an offer for him. It's a five-year, $100 million deal. That is more money than he's made. That is a $20 million AAV. And that goes out more years than we are comfortable, but we think that's a fair deal. Scott takes that offer to the Cardinals and he says, listen, I've got 6130. You want him? He doesn't have 6130. He has 5100. But the Cardinals say he has 6130. We told our salespeople we're getting another pitcher. We're competing in a league where if we don't win our division, we're not going to make the playoffs. We are the St. Louis Cardinals. All right, we will go to 6135. All right, I'll be right back to you. Goes back to the Yankees and says, we're not going to do 5-100, but we've got the team right in your division who's in for six at 140. So you're going to have to beat that. Do you see the pattern I'm doing here? The day after refers to the way agents take advantage of teams who are left holding their cojones the day after big signings happen, who are left with owners who are looking at their team saying, we're not good enough, but we're supposed to be. The day after is full of false bravado excitement for teams who do sign and overpay these players. They wake up and they milk it and they assume everything's gonna be okay until it's not. The day after is also when players who have not signed say, all right, it's our turn. Dansby Swanson, the day after Correa signed said, okay, it's time to revisit the teams who are have been left out of the musical chair game of shortstop and let's increase our ask and see how desperate Tom Ricketts really is. And it doesn't help that Cubs fans and Cubs media are calling Tom Ricketts cheap and calling him not engaged, not participating. Tom Ricketts calls up Jed Hoyer and says, hey, is there an Edwin Jackson around here? Is there someone we can overpay to let people know that they can love me again? Of course, then you have the day after for teams who aren't involved anyway, right? Bob Nutting didn't do anything new today than yesterday. Bruce Sherman, John Stanton, they didn't do anything new. The owners of the Pirates, Marlins, Royals, they just did the same thing they did the day before. And that's what they're going to do the day after, tomorrow. That's part of the beauty of baseball. Fans should have an expectation according to what their team is able to do or normally does do. Are Pittsburgh Pirates fans pissed that they didn't sign Aaron Judge? Come on. If you are, your anger is misappropriated. It's the wrong word. Damn it, Coca. It's today Friday. Misguided. Thank you, Coca. Right there, right in the right ear, baby. Misguided. What about these pitchers who take one-year deals? And I love this. I'm going to reclaim my career. I'm going to take the pillow contract. Carlos Correa, I didn't get what I wanted. I'm going to go to Minnesota. 
I'm going to make them all happy. I'm going to have them do all sorts of promotional things. I'm going to pose. I'm going to sign autographs, make appearances. But I'm definitely opting out after one year. But I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say, oh, I could be convinced to stay here because what if I suck and I don't want to opt out because I can't do better? So I don't want to burn the bridge. That's one type of player, the opt-out, the three-year deal with the one-year opt-out. Like we're going to invest in you to make you a favorite in our community when we know you're there for a year and you're just using us. Forget it. What about just the one-year, one-year? Noah Syndergaard signed one year with the Dodgers. God, would I want to be the Dodgers. Giving Syndergaard 13 million bucks plus another million and a half in incentives. What a great deal if you've got the money to do it. If you are a small payroll team allocating $13 million to Noah Syndergaard, no. Great name, great hair, don't get me wrong. But in terms of pitchability, in terms of taking the mound 30 times, taking the rubber and giving you performance worthy of 13 to 15 million, no, that's a Dodger deal. And the reason why players love taking Dodger deals is they dream of being, let's say, an Andrew Heaney, who we drafted, or a Tyler Anderson. You take a Dodger deal and then parlay it to a long-term deal elsewhere, which the Dodgers don't give you. Hmm, I wonder how that is. Oh, because they're not worth it anymore. Andrew Heaney, where, where is he, Coca? Texas? Is he on the Rangers? I think he signed with the Rangers for two years, like 25 or $24 million dollars. That's going to be the least of the Texas Rangers problems, quite frankly. But certainly, and Andrew Heaney is a nice enough guy, but he is not in any way a number two starter or a number three starter. He's a bottom of the rotation filler starter. He's like a five or six starter. That's it. So Syndergaard will play for the Dodgers one year, try to win 15 games, try to go far into the playoffs, and then go back in the market next year at whatever age. What is he, 30, Coca? 31? Go back in as a sort of middle-aged to high-age pitcher and try to get a multi-year deal. Will that work? You know what? Let's do a wait-to-see here. Ready, Coca? We will revisit this wait-to-see at the end of the 2023 season. Noah Syndergaard will have a worse season than Andrew Heaney. Think about that. Think about that statement, Coca. Now, how are we going to measure that? Wins, ah, that's ancient. Whip, I like that. ERA, that's an easy one. I'll get back to you on the formula. I want to think about it. What makes a season better? You have to talk about innings pitch, don't you? You have to talk about ERA. You have to talk about wins because believe it or not, people in front offices do care about that. You want to give your team a chance to win. So we're going to come up with a formula, Coca. Remind me because we're going to come up with it and we will release it. My own personal formula for evaluating whether one pitcher was better than the next, and we're not just gonna use the WHIP plus in Cincinnati. From a front office standpoint, I know what we're gonna do. I'm gonna call uh, several baseball executives, and I'm gonna ask them how they will evaluate at the end of the year, whether Heaney had a better year or Syndergaard, and that's what we're gonna use. Stay tuned, but that's a wait to see. Syndergaard on the Dodgers. Thor is coming to town. Hey, Chris Hemsworth said that he wasn't doing Thor anymore, I think. I wonder if Noah Syndergaard is in LA because he wants to do that. All right, I want to get 
serious for one second with you because there's something going on in the sports world that is bleeding into your wallet. And for whatever reason, there are those who think that celebrities are responsible. I'm talking about FTX. We have done segments on cryptocurrency. I've told you about Sam Bankman-Fried and the fact that he is going to prison for a very long time. He is a criminal. He is a Ponzi schemer. Cryptocurrency is a Fagazi. You can believe me. You cannot believe me. You can be all in on Bitcoin and FTX and Miami coin, whatever you want to be in. That is your business. But I have a very simple question for you. Did you invest in FTX because you saw a commercial with Tom Brady or David Ortiz? And if you did invest in FTX because you saw a commercial with Tom Brady or David Ortiz, did you invest knowing what cryptocurrency was? Or did you just open an account, write a check, make some trades, and you didn't have the first idea what you were doing? Or do you know exactly what you were doing, but you had assumptions that you were investing in a company that would protect your currency? And if so, where did it say that? Lawsuits are being filed left and right against endorsers of FTX. A new one was just filed in a Florida state court against David Ortiz and Tom Brady. And I've got a real problem here. And here's what it is. This has nothing to do with privilege or color or age. It has to do with my working assumption in a belief that consumers are not idiots. It's a baseline legal principle. When I get on an airplane, I make an assumption that a mechanic knows what he's doing when he is upkeeping the plane and that a pilot knows what they're doing when they're flying the plane. I cannot be held responsible to do the research into the background of the pilot and the mechanic, I assume the company and regulators are taking care of that for me. So when there is a crash and there is a problem with the plane, it is a product's liability claim or a negligence claim. A product's liability claim is when you are saying that there was a defect in the manufacture of a part of the plane. When there's a negligence claim, that pilot was drunk. That pilot was not trained properly. It is an allocation of blame. In the legal world, that's the concept. When you break it down, who's responsible for this bad thing that happened to me? What allocation do I receive because it was my fault? So for example, if you cross the street when it says don't walk and you get run over by someone who is texting, what is your allocation of blame for crossing the street when you were not allowed to cross the street? And you hurt yourself, you break your arm, and you are suing for $100,000 of damages. And the jury says, you know what? I agree, that's $100,000 of damage. However, you cross when it said don't walk, you're 75% responsible for what you did. The guy shouldn't have been texting even while driving through a green light we're assigning 25% to him. You get 25%, congratulations, appeal. So allocation is a big thing. So on an airplane, the allocation is pretty simple, right? There is zero part of 
a passenger. Zero. And I don't care what you do for a living. I don't care if you're a mechanic. I don't care if you're even a pilot. But if you're a passenger on a plane, your allocation is zero. When you get on a Delta plane, you expect and are protected against any issues that happen. What about when you go bungee jumping? What do you think the forms are that you sign? When you go skydiving, the forms that you sign. They are signing that you are taking full legal responsibility for anything that could go wrong because skydiving is very dangerous. You die while skydiving and you sue everybody, your family does. And what happens? The court says, well, I see all these forms you signed, your, your dead child signed. Yeah, but who reads those forms? Ah, but that's not the question. You could read those forms because they're readily available, including magnifying glasses if the print is too small. Yeah, but this skydiving company, they didn't even put a parachute on the guy. Ah, a little different. Without a parachute, it doesn't matter what you've signed because that is to be expected that there will be a parachute. There is a risk inherent in skydiving, but the assumption that the parachute is on the back of the diver, of the person who you are co-diving with, that's pretty reasonable to assume. Can you prove that guy had no parachute? Ooh, now we've got ourselves a lawsuit. When we're talking crypto, several types of people here, right? I don't even know what the hell it is. That's one type of person. But there's Tom Brady. If Tom Brady says that I should do it, I'm going to do it. Hey, Jamie Foxx at BetMGM. I love you, man. You are so good in Ray. You're such a good actor. I'm going to bet on that team. Oh, my God. I lost all my money. I'm suing you, Jamie Foxx. What do you think? Does Jamie Foxx have a responsibility to all the people who lose their paychecks betting on BetMGM? Does Major League Baseball have a responsibility to you that you become a gambling addict or the EPL or NFL? Of course not. All we have to do is put a little phone number on the bottom of every commercial. If you or anyone else you know has a problem, call 1-800-GAMBLERS-USA. People standing by 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What's that number? How the hell do I know? It's so small. I just want my damn eczema cured. Now, I understand it could cause kidney malfunction. I understand there could be incontinence and absolute impotence. But man, consult your doctor, eczema. We'll take care of it for you. Do you not watch these commercials where you hear all of these things that you ignore? If you badly want something and you badly want to believe it, and you ignore what could be right in front of you, is that the celebrity's fault? Does the celebrity have a legal responsibility to make sure that you don't gamble your paycheck away? No. Does the celebrity endorser have a legal responsibility to know that cryptocurrency may go bankrupt? No. But wait. What happens if Tom Brady sat in a meeting with Sam Bankman-Fried? They sat together and Sam said, Tom, here's our plan. I'm gonna have you do commercials, I'm gonna have you do conferences, and I'm gonna have you do speeches. And what people don't know is we're gonna take their money, they're gonna invest in this crypto exchange called FTX, we're gonna sweep all the money out of their accounts, and we're gonna buy yachts and Picassos, and we're gonna buy mansions, and we're gonna have another company over here that nobody's gonna own except us. This is gonna be great. Hi, I'm Tom Brady. Please, 
Join me and Sam Bankman-Fried as we help you make money with cryptocurrency and FTX. Tom, you have the right to remain silent. That's a crime. He has civil and criminal liability as such. That's one scenario. Another scenario. Hey, Tom, it's Sam Bankman-Fried. You'd never talk to me normally because I'm the furthest thing from cool. But would you mind if I paid you like $5 million in cash? I mean, regular W-2 income. Would you mind doing a commercial asking people to endorse FTX? And by the way, I'll give you a piece of the company. Well, well, thank you, Sam. May I please see all the financials for the company? Sure you can, Tom. Tom shows it to his lawyer, looks at the financials. Does he have culpability then? Nope. Why not? There's nowhere in the financials that had any sort of path to showing that this was a fraud that was being perpetuated against the common folk. Tom has plausible deniability because he's a celebrity endorser, just like every endorser. If you endorse Johnson & Johnson dandruff shampoo and the people using it are dying of cancer, are you in trouble because they died of cancer? Only if you're told, hey, we want to endorse this product even though everyone dies of cancer. There's some culpability there if that happens. And I'm talking legal culpability, not moral. I can make a very cogent argument that Tom Brady or David Ortiz knew or should have known that Sam Bankman-Fried was full of shit that he was not someone you wanted to bank on. But do you know the number of incels and people who come across my desk every day as president of the Marlins with ideas and I had to have my spidey senses up and sometimes I was right, like with Scott Rosting, sometimes I was wrong, like with Sir Pizza. There is no way to put onto somebody a level of knowledge that is not reasonable. There are so many things that are endorsed where I could call into question the morality of the product. Some religions, some amendments to constitutions, some political candidates. But the difference is as consumers, it's our job to have our eyes wide open. Do I think that there was a kid out there who took all of their money or stole money from their parents and bought FTX because of Tom Brady telling him to? Maybe. Maybe it's true. But that doesn't lead to any sort of responsibility. Does Tom Brady or any other celebrity who endorses a product, do they need to know for sure the product is perfect and works? Do they need to know for sure that no one's going to get hurt by this product, that there's no negative results of them endorsing this product? There is a negative result in a zero-sum game. If you are endorsing Pepsi, you are hurting people who have jobs making Coke because if more people drink Pepsi, then Coke stock price could go down because the volume of people drinking Coke could go down. Are you responsible for the jobs of the people who are making the syrup or pulling the, the, the cocoa nuts from the fields? Where do you stop? This lawsuit has no chance to succeed. But it raises a very interesting question, which is what is the concern over a celebrity's ability to persuade people to do things that they otherwise wouldn't do? We have a word for that. It's called a snake oil salesman. 
There are suckers born every minute. That is part of our society. And if we try to legislate away all of the suckers, it's not gonna work. We can't educate everyone to be able to look at a situation and come away with it with the same analysis. It's an impossibility. It should be enough that there are disclaimers, that there are forms that you fill out. It should be enough that there is a difference between depositing money in a bank account at Bank of America versus buying a cryptocurrency where there are no bank accounts and there are no records. And it is not government regulated. We have to have a sophisticated view of this, which is consumers, no matter their level of sophistication, know the difference between JP Morgan and Bitcoin. Now, there are levels of sophistication and we have a government that regulates those levels of sophistication. So for example, if you have a bank account or an investment account, you are not allowed to trade in futures or options or puts or calls or on margin, which is borrowing money you don't have to invest in things that are highly speculative unless you are ruled to be a quote, sophisticated investor, and there is a legal threshold for that, both in amount of money and in level of experience dealing with these issues. What level of sophistication are we supposed to impute onto a person in the crypto world with a commercial by Tom Brady or David Ortiz? Ask yourself that. My answer is simple, none. I'm assuming the lowest common denominator of stupid and the lowest common denominator of stupid, which you can't legislate against stupidity and you certainly can't eliminate it. But the pitfall of engaging in an activity that you don't know about because someone told you to do it, whether it's Tom Brady or your uncle, because you love Tom Brady, you love your uncle, you love the view of seeing someone on TV and you get duped because of that. I'm not being robotic here, Coca, but that's the way of the world. What about the people on the street? Have you ever seen those, uh, those games of the ball games where they hide a ball? What are those called, Coca? The, the guys who do that, there's a word for that, where they're showing you balls, there's one ball and where, where's it going? It's sleight of hand and there's people dropping money down and tourists are getting suckered every minute because there's a guy who's standing outside the the circle who says, oh, it's right there. I got 50 bucks, the ball's at number one. And all of a sudden the ball's at number one, they give 50 bucks to the guy. And then he says, wow, this is so easy, it's free money. And then the tourist comes up and says, all right, I got 50 bucks, I see it, it's number two. And all of a sudden the ball's not at number two and that person loses 50 bucks. Is there a responsibility there for anybody? Yeah, it's to the idiot who lost the 50 bucks. We come back, we're gonna review Survivor. The finale was yesterday. And we're gonna have a conversation, a little World Cup conversation. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. 
Ramps business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramps software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. Today's Thursday. Our word of the day was the day after. Today is the day after Wednesday. Wednesday means many of, let's say, 26 half the year. Wednesdays mean survivor. Last night was season 43. I was the first boot of season 28. So it's been 15 seasons, which is, there's different numbers of seasons, two seasons per year, but you had the COVID issue. My season was February of 2014. Here we are in December of 2022. And Gabler won Survivor, a 51-year-old heart valve specialist who then decided to donate his entire winnings to charity. We can get into the tax ramifications of that later if we want. But what I'd rather get into is certain things that are going on with Survivor as they try to make it continue its relevance. I want to bring to your attention the genius of the casting people on Survivor. When you see a season unfold, you are watching unscripted TV and you're watching characters with an arc. You're watching characters being put together like puzzle pieces to form a story that will keep your interest where you will be invested in the outcome of the story. It's exactly what fiction writers want when they're making up a TV series. They wanna create characters that you have an investment in. You actually care what they do even though they're not real. You actually want them to be real. You wanna go have coffee with Jerry Seinfeld or George or Elaine. Unscripted has real people doing real things in an unreal setting. There is editing going on in Survivor that you're, you understand because they're filming you 24 hours a day. There were three shifts of eight hours and you are being filmed 24 hours a day. So if you have 13 hours of programming, but it's really 42 minutes times 13, but it's just for math, let's make it 13 hours and you are filming 26 days times 24 hours, right? 400 plus, that's, you know, 600 hours, let's say. Do you agree that you're gonna have to edit out a lot and that you're gonna put things together in a way that makes it a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end? Survivor is masterful. Their casting department finds people from around this country in different places doing different things. People who are tall, short, skinny, fat, dark, light, tattooed, pierced, straight up, straight down, doesn't matter. And they combine them into this social experiment and that's what Survivor has become. In the beginning it used to be, who can lose the most weight and then look the most different at the Survivor reunion when you say, my God, I don't even recognize you because I'm used to seeing you starving. And then Survivor producers and Jeff Probst said, it sort of sucks to watch Garrett sit around all day because he can't move because he's so damn hungry. 
it then evolved into this game where these people are so smart because they're so good at lying. Do you know how hard it is to lie to someone when the expectation is that you're lying? It's way easier to lie to someone when the bottom line thought is, hey, you're not lying. It didn't even occur to me you'd be lying to me. Way easier to lie under those scenarios. That's why I don't get how agents can lie to team presidents. We know you're lying and we still think you're telling the truth when you lie to us. Why do we do that? It's the human condition. It's what makes us so cool is that you can go on Survivor, a game that requires lying, where everybody's lying and you can form a bond that says, hey, you're not lying. Oh my God, you were lying. Show's over. We're still in touch and I still love you. It's a family, all of us Survivor alums. We all lied to each other, but in the real world, you figure out who you're not lying to and who's not lying to you. And from that, friendships and bonds are made. Baseball is no different. I just had a conversation with an agent yesterday. We hadn't spoken to him in a long time, represented a couple of our players back in the day. We were talking about life and business and nothing personal and various things. And we were laughing at the battles we used to have. And no one would have thought, especially us, that we would ever 15 years later, five years later, have conversations that were based on truths and friendships and commonalities of interest. It is the ultimate example of things being just business and not personal. Survivor is the ultimate example. Negotiating with agents is the ultimate example. It is just business. All right. No, that wasn't the end of the show. We still have like 10 minutes left. 146 and 122 is the nothing personal pick of the day. We had France over Morocco. France against Argentina in the World Cup final. All the people in Qatar who spent $769 billion to put these games up, to put the World Cup up. It's coming to an end on Sunday. Two games left, a third place match on Saturday between Croatia and Morocco, and then the final between Argentina and France on Sunday. And all I keep thinking about are the criminals in Qatar, all the people who died all of the people who don't care that anybody died and how badly they want a Qatar against Saudi Arabia in the final. And they're stuck with France versus Argentina. And it makes me smile because from FIFA's standpoint, from the fan standpoint, it's the perfect, perfect final where the discussion does not have to be about the atrocities of Qatar. We can talk about Messi. We can talk about is Mbappe the next Messi? Will Mbappe get his second cup leaving Messi with zero? Will Messi finally, finally get his cup and get to hoist it above his head and celebrate the career of the GOAT? The storylines for Sunday are perfect. You couldn't have drawn it up better. Will France be the first country to repeat since Brazil in 1962? Or will Argentina get it after so many years of not getting Messi as World Cup? Brilliant. I'm going to be watching. I'll tell you that. We'll have a pick for you for tomorrow. I just want to make sure that Messi and Mbappe are playing, but on tomorrow's show, we'll have our, our weekend picks. I can assure you I'm going to be discussing the Sunday World Cup match. Do you think it's a coincidence that Fox is showing that at 10 a.m. Eastern? Just throwing it out there. Anyone? Anyone realize why it's at that time when the semifinals were at 2 p.m. on Fox? Yeah, of course you know. 
NFL Sunday. We know where our bread is buttered. We're not taking anything off the air to show World Cup. We want to get you there for the whole day. Watch us from 10 to 12. If there's extra time in PKs, it'll be over by 1240. We'll go right into a quick pregame, right into kickoff at 103 or 107 Eastern. It's a perfect plan for Fox. That's why FIFA has so much money to bribe people. All right, NFL week starts tonight. We've got Jimmy Garoppolo and the Niners going against Russell Wilson and the Seahawks. Very exciting game. Is Christian McCaffrey still questionable, by the way, Coca? And they're definitely starting Purdy, that rookie who came in after Jimmy G got hurt, Trey Lance got hurt. Now they've got Mr. Relevant as their quarterback going against Geno Smith and a team that has overperformed, yet somehow the Niners are favored by three. Guess which way I'm going? Not even a question. Niners minus three over the Seahawks. Seahawks were good at a moment, not anymore. Take the Niners, 146 and 122. There is an unwritten rule that we have in sports as executives with our players. And the unwritten rule is this. If we sell you under the bus, if we do something to you in public, there's a reason we're doing it. And we are going to speak to you or your agent about what we've done in almost all instances prior to us doing it. There are lessons we're trying to impart. There are messages we're trying to get to either the public or to your teammates or to other teams in our league. Greg Berhalter is the coach of Team USA. May not remember, but Team USA had a nice run in this World Cup. Team USA, as we head towards 2026, with what was one of the youngest teams in the World Cup, by 2026, we will be far more mature as we and the rest of North America are hosting. There is hope, even in an expanded field, which is going to be amazingly cool, that the USA has a chance. The question is, will Berhalter be the coach? He did something the other day that caught the attention of one of his players and caught my attention. He had a news conference. He talked about Gio Reyna, who's a player for the U.S., a young player, who didn't play a lot in the World Cup, who was supposed to. And in the press conference, he basically said that Reyna did not practice hard, was not showing a ton of effort in a pre-World Cup friendly they did or something and that he was told to address the team to discuss exactly why Reyna was behaving as though he was entitled or behaving as though he did not have to work as hard as other people on the team. And the ramifications of that were found in the lack of playing time in Qatar. It is not uncommon to make an example of a young up-and-coming superstar to give them work habits, good work habits. It is not strange at all that you would call out a young player in front of his team to embarrass that player into working harder. It is not uncommon at all that you would get veterans on a team to talk to the young player, to whip him into shape, to haze him in order to get that player to understand that he needs to do better. It is very uncommon to do that part in public, though. There is no reason, no matter how good Reyna is, 
no matter how bad his attitude is, no matter how poorly he practiced or what his general lack of effort was, to put that upon his teenage shoulders after a World Cup defeat was not a good strategy by the coach. Because what it caused, unfortunately, is Reyna to have to respond. And when you make a player respond publicly, you are making this a far bigger issue than it needed to be. And by the way, Reyna took the high road. He said in a post, I hoped not to comment on matters at the World Cup. These things should be kept private. And he's totally right. That being said, he said, statements have been made that reflect on my professionalism and character, so I feel the need to make a brief statement. And then he went on to explain that he's emotional and that he was disappointed in his behavior and he apologized and he did all the things that you're supposed to do in a statement. It was a perfectly worded post by Reyna. There's no chance that he wrote it himself. It came with the help of PR people, with the help of his team, maybe his family, with professionals. But it didn't pass the test for me because I don't want my coach making my player make a statement like that. I want it planned out better. When you are calling out a player, you have to have a plan. You have to have a reason and it has to be relevant to something that's acute and something that can make a difference. You're in the middle of a season and something happens and you want to get a message to your player, call them out. But off season, and right now, the World Cup for the USA is off-season, quote-unquote. What are you establishing? Are you trying to put yourself in a better position to be the coach in 2026 by saying that you're totally in charge, that you took control of the clubhouse by punishing Reyna when he wasn't trying hard so everyone knew that you would not put up with that, so make me the coach in 26? Do you think that the U.S. Soccer Federation, the men's national team, that they're not aware of that? They're insiders. Why do you need to have the public behind you in this regard? That's the only reason to make it public is that you want the sympathy or you want the support of the public. What do they have to do with whether or not you're coaching in 26? And you have the possibility of sacrificing one of your own players who should be there playing in 26. If you want to get him to perform in 26 better, there are myriad ways to make sure it's not a repeat of 22, none of which include going public about his efforts and the fact that you had him apologize to the team. I don't know Burhalter. Never met him. I don't know why he did what he did. I don't know who forced him to do what he did, whether or not it was of his own accord. But I do know that it was not coordinated in a way that we also do where, hey, we're going to say something about you and here's the statement you're going to make and we're going to put this to bed now. That's a coordinated result and a coordinated plan to take care of an in-house problem. We do that like puppeteers. Let's get two players together who have fought and we're going to get them to make a joint statement. We're going to do a joint. Like remember when Machado and Tatis had that fight in the Padres dugout and the next day there, were, there was syncopation in what their statements were? 
that wasn't the case with the U.S. men's national team. And in this case, I have to put the blame on Burhalter unless he was carrying the water for someone else in an effort to make more money for himself and keep his job. And if that's the case, hell, I'm good with it because it's just business. Sorry, Reina. It's nothing personal. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.